Our scripture reading this evening is from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of of all the earth. Thus far, the reading of sacred scripture. Our text words this evening you can find in the portion read to you, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. And I want to read again at this time, verses 4 and 7. And they said, Go to. The words go to, the original Hebrew also mean come. Come, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And verse 7, this is now God speaking. Go to or come, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. With God's help, our theme tonight is Babel, or Babylon, the city of man visited by God. Babylon, the city of man visited by God. We will see first in verses 1 through 4, man going up in sin. And in verses 5 through 9, God coming down in judgment. Babylon, the city of man, visited by God. Man going up in sin, God coming down in judgment. Last week, we saw that Nimrod was the builder of Babel, or Babylon. Nimrod situated Babel, or Babylon, about 50 miles south of modern Baghdad in Iraq. 
Babylon was built in the vast plain or Mesopotamia that was formed by the flood deposits between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. The name Mesopotamia in Hebrew actually means in the middle of the rivers. So between these two rivers, in this fertile plain, this remarkable Sumerian civilization grew and flourished. Now in this city of Babylon, there was a tower. It's never called in the Bible, by the way, the Tower of Babel. But it's a good name for it because it was a temple tower built in the city's midst. The technical name for such a tower is a ziggurat. Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T. These towers were not uncommon in that time. They were temple towers built in all major cities of Mesopotamian civilization. And so Genesis 11 tells us about the building of the city of Babylon with this great tower in the midst of the city. And it tells us, of course, about how this building program is interrupted, disrupted by God. Now, we might ask ourselves tonight, why is this story in the Bible? What does it have to do with us? Why is it important for us today? How does it relate to us today? Well, for one thing, Genesis 11, as I said last week, explains to us Genesis chapter 10. The account of this tower and God's judgment shows us why humanity was divided into different nations, into linguistic groups. But secondly, and more importantly, and that's our focus tonight, Genesis 11 presents us with a theme that runs throughout all the Bible, right down to the very last book, Revelation. It's the theme of Babylon, the city of man, the city that always opposes the city of God and the people of God. Babylon in the Bible is the symbol of pride, rebellion, sin, Babylon is anti-God. Babylon is humanism run rampant. The great prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah speak of Babylon as the embodiment of human arrogance. And much of Daniel also exposes the sin, the empire of Babylon. You remember in Daniel 5, boys and girls, the handwriting on the wall that said, Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. That was written to a Babylonian king and the Babylonian people. And right on, all the way into the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, we hear in Revelation 18, the final judgment of Babylon. Revelation 18, verses 2 and 10 say this, 
And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. So here already in Genesis 11, we have the building and the initial disruption of Babylon, which was actually rebuilt several times, representing the city of man. And so what God is doing in Genesis, before he moves that camera, you remember, to focus only on one man and one family, and on the people of God that flow out of that family, the family of Abraham, in whom all nations of the earth will be blessed. Before God does that, for a final time, he gives us a last view of the world as a whole, the nations of the world, as it were, being formed in the plains of Mesopotamia, And God is showing us in this story that through His own chosen family, His purposes will be worked out among His people, but also His purposes will be worked out throughout the world through the table of the nations that He will make by scattering abroad the people from the center of Babel. So here's a last view, if you will, of the world before the rest of the Bible is going to focus predominantly on the living church of God. But then thirdly and finally, Genesis 11 is important to us because it is so incredibly relevant to our day, so minutely describing our 21st century world with stunning similarities. Genesis 11 helps us to understand the world in which we live, the context in which we are called to give witness. Genesis 11 shows us there is nothing new under the sun. How so? I want to look with you in my first point tonight at four remarkable characteristics about Babylon that we need to grasp if we're going to understand the relevance of this portion of God's Word for us today. And the first is this, the impressive achievement, the impressive achievement of Babylon Babylon represents a massive technological advance. These people are living in an organized city. But more than that, we're told that they used brick instead of stone. They used slime or tar, as it can be translated, or even asphalt, instead of mortar. They're living in a flat, fertile plain, you see, formed by flood deposits. And there there were no stones there to provide building material. But there, in that flood plain, there were abundant supplies of uh, clayish material. And these people learned how to bake this clay into useful construction material. Perhaps it wasn't quite as durable as stone, but it was 
very useful. It was quick. It was cheap. And so they could make bricks of any size or shape in vast numbers. And they could construct great buildings, sophisticated buildings. And so they would be, these buildings would be bound together by this, this, this type of asphalt and tar that, that was collected near the surface. And of course, this is a byproduct of the vast underground of oil deposits in that area, which we still obviously use today and use in our, our cars and automobiles. But what this tells us is that here is a vastly advanced, technologically developed human society. Now, that fits in, of course, with all that we know about this ancient Sumerian civilization from history as well. Abraham and his people in his era would have been aghast. They would have been astonished when they compared their simple lifestyle to the advanced lifestyle, the technological complexity of Babylon. Babylon was also a culture that was, that was uh, advanced aesthetically. It had made great cultural progress. And that's what they were trying to display as well, in part at least, with the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was a high central landmark in the middle of this huge city, a temple tower. And we know very much from other sources extra-biblical sources, what these towers looked like, these ziggurats. They were in Ur. In fact, in 1922, a British archaeologist discovered such a tower in the city of Ur, where Abraham came from. There was such a tower in Nineveh and many other places. And a temple tower is described in great detail for us by a Greek historian, a church historian, or rather a secular historian, Herodotus, about 460 years before Christ. And in fact, that is described further for us in a tablet, which today is in a museum in Paris, France. And so we know that these towers were... Huge, multi-storied structures containing a number of platforms of decreasing size as they ascended. A tablet in the Paris Museum describes a, a tower that is 325 feet wide and 325 feet long and 100 feet high. And on top of it, there are five other platforms decreasing in size between 60 and 50, 50 and 60 feet high. On the very top, there was a seventh level, which was the temple. And so you can picture in your mind, boys and girls, this was an enormous building, something like a 30-story building, with a base of 325 feet in all directions. Such a building would have ramps and stairways for access. And the platforms were painted in different colors, we're told. Some were black, some were red, some were blue. But the top, where the temple was, was all in silver. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? 
Check out Reform Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. color of divinity. So try to imagine this magnificent structure. It's staggeringly beautiful and complex. It's a picture of power and wisdom and expertise. Now we don't know at what stage of the progress of this building God came down and interrupted the plans at Babel. But it was no doubt an impressive achievement as it was going up. And it's a picture, it's a symbol of what man can do, what the city of man can accomplish. When people get their heads together, in God's common grace, human nature can achieve many amazing things. And of course today, we are surrounded by the magnificent towers of Babel. Shakespeare already said some 500 years ago, what a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty. Human beings are amazing. Humans have split the atom. Humans have walked on the moon. Think of the advances of modern medicine. Think of the tremendous development of telecommunications. Think of how we can step on a plane and in less than 24 hours be anywhere else in the world. Think of electricity, nuclear power, computers, internet. It's awesome. You can go in a supermarket today, and the produce produce that you buy can be from all ends of the earth. You can buy almost anything you can imagine. And then think of human art and music and literature. It's beauty. It's glory. Don't underestimate what the natural man can do. In these things, to the nomads of Moses' time, Babylon was absolutely stunning. But over against this remarkable achievement, there is this very dark side. Babylon doesn't only have impressive achievement, it has a selfish, arrogant spirit. That's the second thought. A selfish, arrogant spirit. Well, no doubt in, in the midst of Babylon, these people also, as in our day, had a great deal of insecurity within themselves. But on the surface, they appeared supremely self-confident. They were going to shape their own destiny. They were selfish. They're going to control their future by collective effort. They're going to cooperate and work together for their own gain. They're going to employ all their skills. We can hear them boasting. They're they're talking openly together, aren't they? Excited about their plans and achievements. Go to. Let us come. Come. Let us make brick. Let us burn them thoroughly. Let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto the heavens. They're excited. They're enthusiastic about their human enterprise. They're going to give all their gifts to achieve something great. 
The tragedy is they're only concerned about themselves. There's a bold selfishness at play in these words, especially in the original Hebrew. It's very strong. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. You see, they're not concerned about God. It's all about us. It's all about we. Ultimately, it's about me, my advantage, our advantage, self-interest. There's something arrogant here about the unity they desire. That's what they ultimately want to do. They want to stick together to get their own way. They want to supply their own desires, to live for themselves. They, they understood there was strength in unity. But it was a unity that was not God-fearing. It was a unity built on sin. A unity based on unbelief. And so Isaiah speaks of Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, and its intensely selfish, arrogant spirit. Isaiah says Babylon is proud, like every human culture is proud. Like human beings are proud. Like you and I by nature are proud. And how abundant the Babylonian spirit has been in the decades that that lay behind us. The decades in which we've lived have been marked by special degrees of self-centered faith in human technology and human ingenuity. Politicians of every stripe, governments of every kind, ranging from capitalism to communism, have promised a man-made heaven on earth. And although the horrors of the past 100 years from World War I to 9-11 and the recent tsunamis and floods have shaken man's faith in himself to some degree, it's not destroyed. Even today, America has not repented. People are intoxicated in America and around the world with mankind's cleverness and mankind's achievements and mankind's potential. And they say, there's nothing we can't do if we put our heads together, if we get united. All problems can be solved, we are told. All it takes is money. How often we heard that in the elections a few weeks ago. If we just had more money, we will win If we just have more ingenuity, you see, we will solve problems. We can win wars, and we can win political campaigns, and we can win the battle for cancer and other diseases. We can, if we had enough money and cleverness, we could even perhaps solve global warming and other problems. The theme of our age is we can do it. We can control our destiny. We are Babylon today. We can work it out. Well, Genesis 11 then is, I trust you see, compellingly up to date in its selfish and arrogant spirit. And this arrogance is, of course, distasteful to God. But there's something much worse. Not only is there impressive achievement and selfish, arrogant uh, spirit here, but there is thirdly an ungodly motivation an ungodly motivation. Look at verse 4. Let us build us a tower and a city. Let us make us, notice this, let us make us a name. You see, there's no room for God here. There's no reverence here. There's no desire to honor God. No disposition to trust Him, as we heard this morning, for all they need. 
Actually, there's a very subtle play on words here. You remember from a few weeks ago that the name Shem means simply name. And God said that he is going to build a name. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to pause beside chapter 12, verse 2, where God says to Abraham, I will make thy name great. I will do it. But you see, that's not good enough for the people of Babylon. They say, let us do it. Let us make us a name. They don't need God to make their name great. They don't need a gift from God. They can do it for themselves. God is unnecessary, irrelevant, marginalized. We can make a name for ourselves and by ourselves. And then look, look at what else they say. Let us build us a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Now, maybe, boys and girls, you thought that that meant that they thought they could actually go beyond the skies and penetrate the very heaven of heavens. But in the ancient cultures, you see, just things that got very tall were considered to reach, by their standards, the heavens, the dwelling place of God. And they were going to do this by their own efforts so that God would come under their control. God would become part of their system. You see, the ungodly motivation is that then they could use God and they could manage God and they could control God. God would be in their hands. That's what the tower mentality says at root. One of the towers of that that era, 675 B.C., a bit later, that is, we know is called Eser Hadam, which means in Hebrew, the platform joining heaven and earth. And the very word Babel here means the gate of God. You're in the very presence of God, you see. Their God, the Babylonian God, is not transcendent. He's not above and beyond the heavens. He's within my building range. He's, he's, he's imminent. He's part of this creation. He's part of human consciousness. And so we can manage Him. We can make Him to be of this world. We can, we can get Him to follow us. We come. Let us go together. Let us build the tower to reach the heavens. To challenge God. And so the Babylonians, with Nimrod at their lead, determined to disobey God. God had said in Genesis 9, verse 1, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. But these people didn't want to do that. They wanted to stick together. They wanted to build a tower so they would not be scattered over the face of the earth. They chose their own agenda rather than God's blueprint. Their goal is not to be like God, but to replace God. They don't intend to serve God, but they want God to serve them. So it's not God's command, but their wishes that they want gratified. What about you, my friend? Who are you serving? Are you striving to obey God's word? Or do you direct your life according to the passion and the desires of your own heart? Are you too motivated by the Babylonian spirit, the spirit of disobedience? Do you too sideline or try to 
marginalize God in your life. Try to push God to the circumference of your life and of your heart and of your desires so that He's of little practical relevance to you. Oh yes, you you come to church, but when you come home, you don't talk about Him. You don't think about Him. You pray minimally to Him. You try to live your life with God at a distance. You try to push Him to the margins of your life. What a tragedy to be a Babylonian, to have at best a very impersonal relationship with God. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.